In episode 465 with Nicole Bilsma, we are talking all about how to create a toxic-free home. We dive deep into mold, EMFs, and the chemicals in our home, plus so much more. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Hey, beautiful, and welcome back to the show. I am so excited about this episode because as you guys know, if you listen to the show and you follow me on social media, that we have recently moved out of our beautiful treehouse and we bought our dream block of land. Now, currently there is a home on that dream block of land, which we are living in, But at the end of this year, we are going to be knocking down that home and building our dream long-term family home, which is so exciting. And we are going to be working with Nicole and with our architect to create a toxic-free wellness sanctuary. I am so excited about this. And I will share so much of the journey with you on the podcast and on social media. So make sure you follow along because I know that you guys want to hear about this stuff. I have been inundated with messages saying, please share more, please share more. So I will definitely keep you posted and take you along the journey for everything on how to create a beautiful wellness sanctuary, one that is conducive to thriving, longevity and health. Now, for those of you that have never heard of Nicole, she is a building biologist, best-selling author of Healthy Home, Healthy Family, and founder of the Healthy Home Building Biology Movement. She established the Australian College of Environmental Studies in 1999 to educate people about the health hazards in the built environment. She has lectured at tertiary institutions for 30 years, has published in peer-reviewed journals, and is a regular consultant by the media to discuss mold, electromagnetic fields, and toxic chemicals. Head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash 465 for everything that Nicole and I mention in the episode today. And there's a lot. There's a lot that we mentioned, so you guys are going to want to head there. Now, without further ado, let's bring on this brilliant mind, Nicole. Nicole, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here and to have this conversation. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? Nothing. (laughs) A glass of water. I tend to fast about 16 hours between the night and and then I have brunch about 11.30. I found as we go into, you know, post-menopause that it's important to eat less so that's what I do. I fast for 16 hours and then I'll have brunch and then I'll have dunch and just two meals and maybe a snack, nuts between. I love dunch. I've never heard of dunch before. <laughs> I love it. And yes, I have read a lot of science on the benefits of fasting in your older years. You know how we just don't need as much food. My nonna in her 90s, she lived until she was 95, she would always just eat small 
amounts a couple of times a day. She never gorged. She never overate. And, you know, that's one of the keys to longevity is eating till you're 80% full. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. It's important to eat less because you're not in a reproductive state. You're going in the opposite direction and it creates a lot of oxidative stress and you know a lot of toxins come through the gut. So you want to minimize the amount of food and have really good quality foods. So, you know, I eat organic. I tend to have a lot of porridge, et cetera, because I'm not gluten intolerant and lots of fiber and probiotics, prebiotics. So, you know, my parents are Dutch, so we had a lot of sauerkrauts and fermented foods growing up, which I thought was pretty awful but normal for us. And now it's really in. (laughs) Now it's really healthy. So, Yes. Now it's trendy. It's so funny how that happens, isn't it? And it's so amazing to just highlight how different we all are and at different stages of our life, because fasting is not something that I would be doing right now, because especially I'm breastfeeding. So, you know, we're, we're all at different phases of our life. And This is why this kind of like blanket statement around health that you have to eat this one way is really not ideal because we're all so different. I'm lactating. You know, if you're pregnant, if you're lactating, if you're going through menopause, everyone is so different. So we really need to remember that when it comes to health fads and diets. And the environment, you know, everyone has a genetic susceptibility or strengths and weaknesses. Our climate has to be taken into consideration. Ideally, you're eating the slow method, seasonal, local, organic and whole and different stages of your life. If you're in the reproductive stage, you know, you're going to eat very differently to the post-reproductive stage. That's really, really important. And of course, breastfeeding, you know, the rules change significantly with pregnancy and breastfeeding and all those other issues. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me how you got into this work. How did this all unfold for you? Well, two events, noticing a very strong correlation between many of my patients' illnesses and their home, especially if they had asthma or allergies or autoimmune disorders that were symbolized by long-term fatigue that wasn't responding to diet. Because, of course, as a naturopath, we do four years of nutrition. I lectured in nutrition to fourth years for some time, as well as other modalities. And generally, nutrition provides the resilience to deal with the environment. The problem is nutrition and the quality of our soils, nutrient-deficient soils, has declined significantly. And on top of that, the environmental exposures have increased 18 orders of magnitude higher than when our grandparents were children. So, you know, exposures to chemicals have just blown out of the water. In fact, this year, environmental pollution has crossed the planetary boundary considered safe for humanity. We're already beyond the time of that exposure to chemicals and each generation has more and more chemicals in the cord blood. And of course, we are now anticipating that those, that exposure is going to double or triple by 2050. So, you know, this is the problem. The second event that happened that really got me into environmental exposures was the fact that we moved into our home and I subsequently had 10 miscarriages in this home and we were sleeping near the meter panel. We weren't sleeping very well and uh, I just, there was high levels of traffic lead air pollutants coming through our master bedroom because we were near a teen dissection. There's geopathic stress under the bed when we got a dowser in. So I just said to my husband, we need to move to the back bedroom and the rest is history. Had three kids under three. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Wow. So how long ago was this when all of this happened and this birthed your passion for this stuff? Well, the twins are are 15 now. So that's that's an interesting age. Just shoot me. (laughs) 
and my youngest is 12, Charlotte. So this was happening in the 2007 I had the twins. So it was going on seven years of miscarriages. So from the late 1990s, early 2000s when all of that was happening and I saw every specialist you know, under the sun. We didn't qualify for IVF because they get pregnant easily, but I went to everyone from tarot readers and clairvoyants right up to the IVF, which we didn't qualify for, haematologists and rig miscarriage clinic and no one could help us. And I, I was steadfast. There's always a reason why people are sick and I'm going to find out. Even if I can't have children, I want to know why. So I'll do whatever it takes. I'm just like a dog at a bone. So I just started to go, it's interesting, it all started when we moved into this lovely half an acre property on the river in Warrandyte, everything started to go pear-shaped. So what is it about it? Is it the pesticides? Was it the geopatic stress? Was it the electromagnetic fields on the other side of our bed head, you know, creating high magnetic fields into the bedroom? You know, was it the traffic light air pollution? It's like, I'm just going to look in this, start looking at the research. And I was shocked. There was so much data even then on air quality, indoor air quality, on the US EPA website and the World Health Organization's website. So I just thought, why didn't I get trained this as a naturopath or acupuncturist? Why wasn't any of this in there? And still now, 30 years on, it's still not covered in any detail, like even drinking water. There should be a whole subject on drinking water quality, not just how much to drink, but the quality of the water, the energetics of the water, the contaminants in the water, which there are many, you know, you know when you turn the tap on, most people don't know. I know most health experts say, make sure you're getting your eight glasses, but what type of water are you drinking? And then what are you bathing in? And what are you washing your hands in? It's so important that we factor in everything. And I absolutely agree. I think all of this should be taught in school or at least, you know, naturopathy and acupuncture. Like we have to look at everything as a whole. And I love that when we are unwell, when we are sick, There is a reason why. Don't just hand over your power to a doctor or an expert. Don't hand over your power and go, tell me what's wrong with me. Give me something to fix me. Give me a pill to fix me. Give me surgery to fix me. Ask the question, why? Why aren't I getting pregnant? Why do I have asthma? Why am I getting allergies? Why do I have eczema? Why do I have migraines? Why, 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 why? Ask yourself these questions. It is so important. Put on your detective cap and go digging. You know, is it the environment? Have I just moved? There's so many things. Is it what I'm eating? Is it relationships? Is it environmental, physical, emotional? There's so much that we can dive into. And I love that you look at it like that. And I really want everyone listening, whatever you've got going on in your life right now, health-wise, ask yourself why go digging and go deep into it. But I want to talk to you specifically, I mean, we could do a whole episode on health, we could do a whole episode on water, but I really want to talk to you about geopathic stress, EMF, mold, all of those sorts of things. Because right now, we have just recently sold our beautiful treehouse and we bought our dream block of land in our dream area. And we're currently living in this house which had mold in it before we moved in. I want to talk to you about that. However, we're only living in this house for six months and then we're going to knock it down and build our dream home. 
chemical-free, toxic-free, amazing. And these are all things like, I think I'm going to do your course so that I am well-equipped with all of the knowledge on how to create a toxic-free home. And we'll talk about your course in a moment. But we had to do a lot of work to get this place that we're currently in livable for us, for our standards, just to move in here for six months. So we did fogging. I'm not sure if you know about fogging. I'm sure you do, which we can talk about. But we did fogging. We had to, unfortunately, this place, the three bedrooms have carpet. So we had to get them uh, steamed clean with no chemicals. He just used essential oils and water. We had to have the whole house cleaned top to bottom with chemical-free products. We had to do a lot of work. We had to have the air conditioner cleaned properly by a mold expert. We had to do so much work to get this place livable for us so we could just move in for six months. And in my ideal situation, I wouldn't have carpet. I would have Air Oasis air purifiers in every single room. We've got one at the moment in my daughter's room. We've got air purifiers. We've got dehumidifiers. We've got all of those things. We open up all of the windows and the doors and get the fresh air in now. So it's got to a point now where it's livable for six months. But for anyone who's in Australia right now, you will know the mold issue that a lot of people have had because of the downpour. It is rife. So many people who have never experienced mold in their homes are freaking out. There's mold on things that they didn't even know could get mold on them. And I think for the first time for a lot of people, they're actually taking it seriously. So my husband had toxic mold exposure maybe 15 years ago. And it made him very, very sick. And he has the mold gene. So for him, it's like, we have got to make sure our home is mold free. And so we take mold very seriously. And I think now people are taking it a lot more seriously because they're getting sick. They're getting coughs and colds and asthma and allergies. Can you talk to us about mold? And then I want to dive into some other toxins in our home, like EMFs and the chemicals, and then also geopathic stress. But before we go into that, talk to us about mold, what that does to us if left untreated in our home. Okay. So the cause of mold is moisture. The mold itself isn't the problem because it's found on every surface on this planet from the Arctic to the Antarctica. In a healthy home, you can have up to 500 spores per centimetre squared in a healthy home. And those spores will generally reflect what's in the soil, basidiospores and ascospores mainly, sometimes cladosporium. So it's normal to have mold spores on every surface. It's normal. It's in a small percentage of your gut microbiome, except you've got candida a smaller bit. So the mold isn't the problem. It's actually providing the conditions to support growth. It's when it's growing that it becomes an adverse health effect. And the reason why it'll be growing because it's got food, it's got the right pH, it's got the right light, and it's got the right temperature and moisture. Now, because the light, the temperature between 15 and 30 degrees is ideal for mold, which is everyone's home, the materials in every surface in your home is going to be perfect food for mold, especially particle board. It's like Macca's for mold. It's pre-digested wood chips. It's, you know, glued together. And it doesn't take, it only takes hours, you know, within two days, it's going to be breaking down by mold as opposed to hardwood, which takes a lot longer. So the key to growth is always going to be moisture. Now, moisture comes in two forms, either liquid water or water vapor. 
In Melbourne, Perth, Adelaide, where it's relatively dry and our humidity is frequently below 60% throughout most of the year, you'll find that if mould is going to be a problem in the home, it's due to a, a water event, either a drainage issue, a plumbing problem, a water event like overflowing bath or, or laundry trough, pipe bursting, flexible work braid of water hose, etc. It's going to be a water event. So more often than not, it's going to be obvious when that's happening. Not always, but you know, most of the time. In a humid environment like Sydney, Central Coast, Queensland, Darwin, Broome, you've got high humidity throughout most of the year. Now, when you have 70% relative humidity for 48 hours or more, the mould sitting on all your surfaces will be utilising the moisture in the air to support growth. So what I say to students when I'm in New South Wales, Queensland, etc., because my students come from all over Australia, New Zealand and other countries, is in human environments, it, assume everything's contaminated inside that house unless there's evidence to the contrary because the mould spores are utilising the water vapour in the air, the humidity in the air to support growth. So I normally use an ATP meter, which is normally used by food hygiene handlers who go to cafes to see how clean they are. And I just demonstrate, you know, ATP, which is energy that's created from microbial growth and shows people in their homes in Sydney and Central Coast, see all this dust here? I'm going to show you that there's microbes growing in it. So you have to be far more vigilant about your dust control if you're living in human environments because the dust will provide the food for the mould to grow. So you have to be make sure there's no dust on any surfaces, window sills, walls. If there's clutter and hoarding, then you're in big trouble. But that's the problem. People think there has to be a water event, a storm or a cyclone event, et cetera, to have a, a mould problem. That's not true. Some of the worst times I've seen I couldn't see or smell mould when I walked in. When I got the lab results back, it was a disaster and I should have worn a full face respirator and a Tyvek suit. So that's the problem. You only have 48 hours after a liquid water event for microbial growth. And when it's growing, what's happening is the fungi is trying to kill off its competitors and the bacteria. So it's producing chemicals, two types of chemicals, mycotoxins, which are present on the spores and the hyphae. And hyphae are the branching like filaments. It's like a tree that breaks off. They contain high levels of mycotoxins. And then they go out into the air and they settle on the surfaces and wait for more moisture. And then they start going out in the air and doing this. So it's literally contaminating everything around it and causing what we call condition two. And of course, if you breathe in those hyphae and spores that what we call the fungal fragments or the fungal particulate, then you can get sick because they've got mycotoxins. Now, the key here is that 75% of all mold spores are dead. They can't germinate. So spending time on biocides and chemicals killing the mould is actually a waste of time because most of it's dead anyway. Only 25% can sporulate. And even if you kill some of those, you'll find as soon as you open a window or a door, the spores from outside, basidiospores, ascospores, and a bit of aspergillus penicillin comes and sit on the surface. And if that surface is wet or if there's high humidity, within 48 hours, it's going to grow again. So the reason why we don't recommend fogging is because it introduces more moisture so it exacerbates the problem because the moisture was the problem that created it. So fogging is a big no in our industry. The focus has to be cleaning the fungal particulate off the surfaces and removing moisture-laden material, otherwise you're not going to prevent it. So the other chemical that mould produces is microbial VOCs, which are volatile organic compounds, and that's the damp, musty smell you smell in a mouldy environment. If you're smelling the damp, earthy smell, that's a sign that it's growing and it's producing chemicals. 
because it's trying to kill off its competitors to decompose your house. Ultimately, that's what's going on. Your house is being decomposed right in front of your eyes and it's releasing chemicals, some of the most deadliest chemicals known to man, that when you breathe them in, you know, can cause serious adverse health effects. Wow. Okay. So if someone is in a house right now where they realize that there's mold or they smell that, what is the first step? Ideally, what you want to do is get a building biologist or mold testing technician to come in to identify because without testing, you don't know what you're dealing with. The first part of testing that I teach my students is identify the source of moisture and moisture-laden material. If you don't identify where the moisture is coming from and and with your moisture meter and thermal imaging camera, the moisture-laden material, which you can't do just from sight or touching materials, then you can't develop a scope of works. You don't know how to remediate because you can't often see the problem. That's the issue. So if you're getting asthma or allergies or an exacerbation of those, if you're getting recurrent colds and flus that keep coming back and drag on for weeks or months, that's a big red flag that there's probably mould in the environment. About 24% of the population have an unusual immune response to mould where they don't recognise the antigens or the proteins on the cell wall. And what happens in these people is they don't often get the respiratory problems, which the healthy people like me that aren't susceptible, I might get colds and flus that drag on for weeks and months or bronchitis or pneumonia if I'm in a water-damaged environment. People who can't create these antibodies they end up with the chronic fatigue-like symptoms or what we refer to as chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which is a multi-system, multi-organ disease characterised by brain fog, poor concentration, poor memory, missing words mid-sentence, like a pre-Alzheimer brain. It's like they're not themselves anymore. It's characterised by sleep disturbances. They don't sleep well at night. They start sleeping during the day and the whole circadian rhythm's out of whack and that then creates reproductive issues, hormonal problems, etc. It affects leptin receptors, which can affect their weight. Many people can either put on huge amounts of weight in a short time or they can lose a lot of weight and become cachexic where their muscles are wasting. They also get pain throughout the body, fibromyalgic-like symptoms throughout the body. So they go to the physios and the massage therapists, but the cause isn't being addressed, which of course is the fungal particulate that they're inhaling. And then because the fungi, when it's in the body, it also causes huge amounts of infections because one of the hormones that is neurotransmitters that is impacted is melanocyte stimulating hormone. And that hormone keeps infections at bay in your body. When you suppress this neurotransmitter that's secreted from the hypothalamus, it means that you start getting infections throughout your body, candida infections in the vaginal flora, in your gut. You get Marcoms, which is like a staph infections high up in your respiratory passages. And these infections create huge amounts of metabolites that block your detoxification pathways. So in the end, what happens is you start developing anxiety, depression, maybe even psychosis or mold rage because the pathways that it's blocking in the liver are the same neurotransmitters, adrenaline, noradrenaline, serotonin, melatonin. So your mental health declines and the mental health isn't a true psychological problem. It's due to an environmental exposure. I can't tell you how many people I see with mental health issues that a psychiatrist has diagnosed them with that is not actually due to a true mental illness it's actually due to environmental exposures. And you know because when you take the history, you see the exposures to the moisture or a water event, then the decline in the physical health, their sleep, the fibromyalgia, the pain, potentially the weight issues, then they get the anxiety, depression, 
once they get out of that environment or remediate, once they go to a, a practitioner that knows what they're doing, which don't seem to be very many, including the use of binders is important, they then go, the symptoms go in reverse order and that's when you know that they're actually getting better. You literally explained almost all of the symptoms that my husband experienced and he went to every practitioner trying to find answers and then we realised it was the mould that he was exposed to many, many years ago when he renovated a very, very, very old home in one of the wettest areas in Sydney. So yes, we're on top of it now, but it is something that we really do need to take seriously and not sweep under the carpet. It is such a big issue for so many people. And so how do we prevent the mold from taking over our home? Air purifiers, making sure that there's no dust, air oasis. What are some other things that we can do to make sure that the mold does not overtake our home? All right. So the first thing we do with testing is, as I said, is to identify the moisture and moisture-laden material. If you don't do that, everything else you do is a waste of time. It will just be a Band-Aid approach. Air filters are fantastic to reduce exposure, but unless you get to the source of the moisture and remove moisture-laden materials, it's just going to be, you'll have to have them on indefinitely. That's the first thing that has to be done. The second thing that a building biologist or mould testing technician will do is to identify how far that fungal particulate has spread. You have to identify the boundary. So if it's growing in the walls in the bedroom and it's coming out into that room and adjacent rooms, we want to know how far it's spreading. Is it hidden, etc. So until you establish with sampling how far that boundary is, you can't actually remediate. Once you've established that boundary, you know it's in the bedroom, it's in the adjacent bathroom, it's in the adjacent living space. The mould remediator will generally set up containment and bring in air scrubbers and negative air machines so that as they're essentially what mould remediation is, is cleaning. It's called the HEPA sandwich. They will vacuum the surfaces first, then they'll bring in a microfiber cloth and then they'll vacuum again and then they'll have air scrubbers to pull in all that fungal particulate inside the air scrubbers. They'll bring in negative air. So it's like a, a big tent around the affected areas And as they're taking it off, they want to make sure they're not spreading it to the rest of the house. So that's important. Once you've done that, then the key is to prevent the moisture happening again. So making sure that you replace your flexible braided water hoses under your sinks, which are a number one cause of water events in Australia, accounting for over $320 million in insurance claims, water event claims. So making sure they're replaced every five years making sure if you live in a humid environment that you dehumidify or at least heat the home. It's really important when it comes to winter that you heat the entire house. If you only heat parts of the house, when the water vapour from the cooking or bathing or from what you're breathing, you're breathing out three litres of water vapour a day. Each person is equivalent to around 10 litres of water vapour per day. So if you've got five people living in a two-bedroom apartment, that's 50 litres of water vapour that that apartment has to deal with and it may not be designed to do that. So you may have to bring in dehumidifiers to pull out the moisture that you'll create just from breathing, for example. So it's important to heat the entire house. If you shut off the duct work for some parts of the house to save energy and heating costs, when that water vapour goes to that cold room, cold air holds less moisture. So it condenses and it ends up causing, this is why you find moisture and mould on your walk-in robe because walk-in robes generally aren't heated. So the cold air, the moisture gets there and then it it hits dew point and condenses so you get visible mould on your shoes, 
in your clothes and other things like that. So it's important when it comes to winter times that you heat the entire house, not part of the house. So it's asking, live within your means. I love the fact that my house, I have only one living space with three kids, but, you know, every inch of this house is used. It's like we don't have spare rooms. We don't have other things like this. Every inch of the house is used. I see a lot of people in homes, especially older retired people, tagging couples living in two-storey, six-bedroom homes. They only heat one or two rooms, and that's a disaster for mould because they end up causing these um, psychrometric issues throughout the house. Mm. So where do we find people that do that type of remediation that you just explained? How do we find, because I'm sure there's people that do it that don't do it to that standard. So what are we looking for? How can we find these people? Is there a website? Can you please share? Yes, sure. So I established the Australian College of Environmental Studies in 1999. We run the only government accredited mould testing course in Australia. Uh, It's part of the Advanced Diploma of Building Biology, which is a two-year full-time, four-year part-time course. So the mould testing course is a three-month course, and essentially it's primarily online and then requires a one-day field training in either Sydney, Perth, Melbourne or Gold Coast. Yep. So you'll find it on the college website. That's aces.edu.au. There's a list of practitioners. There's also an association, the Australasian Society of Building Biologists, and they have a list of members throughout Australia and New Zealand. However, we are very few. There's so much work and so little building biologists in the industry. So, you know, if you want to get a financially rewarding career, think about doing mould testing technician or even the building biology course. We just don't have enough people to do the work. Mm, Okay. Well, we'll link to all of that in the show notes so people can check it out if they need to get someone in to support them with their home. We'll link to all of that. So with my home, I want to give you a little bit of a background of this new home that we've just recently moved into. So the issue with this home and why it had so much mold was because for a very long time, when we had that really, really heavy downpour, there was no one living in this place. So it was dusty, 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 so dusty. Like you could literally see the dust on every single surface. And then we had that immense amount of rain. So the mold just grew on all of that dust. So there wasn't a water damage issue or anything like that. It was purely because of the amount of dust and because the home had been locked up with not a single window or door open for months. So when we walked in there, it kind of knocked us over with the smell. I could not believe it. So that was the situation for us. So we know what the cause was, which was great for us because we knew what to do. I've also been in other homes that we were considering buying last year and we got them tested. We got the mold specialists out to test the air in these homes. And there was one home in particular, beautiful, beautiful home that was unlivable. The guy said, this place is unlivable. And it just makes me sad that then, you know, we told the agent that and so we, we said, well, we're not going to buy this place because it's unlivable. And they don't do anything about it. And then some poor other family is going to move into that house and they don't have that information and they don't have that knowledge. And maybe they don't even know about mold or think of it as a serious issue. And I just like, oh, I, I just want to tell them, like, I want to leave them a note and say, by the way, this place is unlivable. So either knock it down or do some work on it. But isn't it sad, you know, that we don't take it seriously? I know in America, they take it a lot more seriously than we do in Australia. 
Yes, absolutely. And look, a red flag is if the house has been empty and it's in Sydney, Central Coast or Queensland, I wouldn't go in there. Unless you've done extensive sampling, you're looking at at least two grand of sampling to do it properly because when a person hasn't been living there for more than four weeks, what we've noticed is the air samples are unremarkable. So you have to do extensive surface sampling because when no one's there, you don't have the 10 litres of water vapour per person. So they do the air samples and they go, oh, it's actually quite low. But you do the surface samples and it's high in Aspergillus, Pancillium, Cladosporium, Stachybotrys because of the humidity. And, of course, then when people move in, they've got 10 litres of water vapour per person and bang, all that fungal particulate on the surface is growing. So unless that's physically removed, unless every surface is physically vacuumed and then wiped down and vacuumed, you know, it's likely to be highly contaminating. That's why fogging it can actually make that worse because you're introducing more moisture in the fogging process that can allow that fungal particulate sitting on the surfaces. So cleaning is absolutely critical that those surfaces are completely clean because we're finding, especially in Sydney, Central Coast and Queensland, if they've not had anyone in there for four or more weeks and the high humidity and there's been no dehumidification, then pr- pretty much every surface will be contaminated. Wow. I wish I had have had this conversation with you before we moved in, but what we did was we did get it fogged through an amazing company and it's all toxic free. So we got it fogged. You leave the house closed for 24 hours uh, for those that have never heard of fogging. And then they come in, they vacuum every surface with the HEPA filter and then they wipe every single surface. They clean basically every single surface in the house. Is that enough or should I still be doing more? Well, the thing is, unless you get baseline, you can't develop a scope of work. So ideally, I say to people, you're far better off spending, you know, in a single story home up to two grand testing to know what you're dealing with. Otherwise, you're flying in the dark. Coming in and remediating without actually testing is a waste. And more often than not, it's people are spending this money and, you know, doing this. And the problem is the people who are remediating and fogging are also testing. And we know that a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them will do air filters and scrubbers on while they're doing the air tests. So, of course, the air tests are unremarkable. They'll wipe the surface and then do a biotape. So it's unremarkable. And then they get the building biologist in you know, two months later, three months later, because the clients are still sick and we're going, this is really contaminated. And they're going, but we had remediation. What was the pre-testing? Who did the pre-testing? Was it an independent person? No, it was the person who remediated. Bingo, there's your red flag. Mm. Whoa, so much to think about. But what you suggested about your air filters are really important. They do an amazing job. So, and there's some good ones out there you mentioned, Air Oasis, Innova Air, Oz Climate, et cetera, you know, as long as you've got a HEPA filter and that's really, really important, the HEPA filter, because you're actually filtering the fungal particulate. The fungal particulate, the hyphae and the spores have the mycotoxins and they also trigger that allergic response in susceptible individuals. So it's important that air filters are fantastic. That If you're in a rental, air filters are definitely the way to go. And if you're in a human environment, you definitely need dehumidification and heating. So you want to make sure you heat the surfaces enough that you don't get condensation. And of course, thinking about how water vapour moves. So teaching my teenagers, it's going to take me a few years. I'm sure they'll be adults by the time they do this. <laughs> Not to have long, hot showers, high levels of water vapour, you know what I mean? Not having wet towels, 10 wet towels in a small bathroom creates huge amounts of water vapour. Things like that, changing people's behaviour, making sure they put the exhaust fan on when they have a shower 
or build it in every time the light goes on, the exhaust fan goes on, making sure that exhaust goes to the atmosphere, not just to the roof void. There are simple things you can build into the home and rental properties to help reduce the likelihood that mould will be a problem. Yes, my 16-year-old bonus son, especially because it is winter right now in Australia, has very, very long hot showers. And I tell him every time to leave the windows open and he doesn't do it. But I go in there straight after and I open every single window and door and try and get a lot of that out. But I will remind him of that. And, you know, when it is really cold, I tend to have hot showers, but I do tend to have really quick ones. So just in and out, I don't spend a lot of time in there because the hot water tends to really dry my skin out as well, even though we've got a filter, which I'll talk to you about in a moment. But it's really important. Little things like that, like opening the windows in the bathroom, not having long showers, not leaving wet things lying around. We live on the beach, so always hanging up our beach towels outside. Like I mentioned before, we've got a couple of dehumidifiers. We've got the Air Oasis going all the time in my daughter's bedroom. We've got the air purifier in her room. You can put the air conditioner on upstairs on dry. We've got heaters, which don't do anything, but it has been quite cold. So we've been trying to, you know, open up all of the windows. But even around here, like I live right near lots of greenery. And so I walk around the streets and I can smell mold in the soil. I can smell it. I can smell it when I go outside. And sometimes I get just massive wafts of it. So what can I do about that? Like I can't go and dig up everyone's soil. Like what can I do about that? If your partner is sensitive and potentially has SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome, his constitution may not be viable to be living in a tropical or a heavy bushy environment because there'll be high levels of cladosporium, aspergillus penicillium, especially in certain times of the year, you know, around autumn where everything's decomposing. And when there's lots of moisture, January, February, March in those climates, it's high levels. I've found many people with SIRS, they do far better in Mildura, dry climates, not in bushy environments, et cetera, because you can't escape it. You, it your internal environment is only going to be as healthy as the external. And if you're living in a tropical rainforest, you're constantly at odds with nature that's trying to decompose your house and expose you to high levels of spores. So that's the first thing that's really, really important to look at. The other thing is that's really important, if you live in a humid environment, Sydney, Central Coast, Queensland, it's important to have a high-growth stat, which is like a just a, a humidity meter, temperature, humidity, that is there's a probe outside and a probe inside. So if the humidity is higher outside, you don't open windows. Otherwise, what happens if the humidity, wherever it's highest, it's going to go from high to low. So in a lot of these environments, I suggest don't open windows because if the humidity, which it is often January, February, March, Sydney, Queensland, Central Coast, it's higher outside than inside. When you open those windows, you're actually going to draw it in and exacerbate an existing mold problem. So that's why those humidity stats are fantastic. And it can tell you at the moment, there's more humidity outside than inside. So do not open your windows. Whereas Melbourne, Perth, Adelaide, it's dry. Like at the moment, the humidity is 52% here. So, you know, we can open our windows in Melbourne. Most of the water vapour in Melbourne and Sydney, in Adelaide and Perth, is what we're generating from the occupants, from breathing, bathing. But in where you're living, in Sydney, et cetera, most of the humidity is actually outside. So how we build homes in Melbourne is going to be very different to what we do in Sydney because the water vapour is trying to come into your house in human environments, whereas in Melbourne the humidity is coming from the occupant behaviour and it's trying to get out. So it's very different building that's required. 
That is such an important point. So where can we get those humidity readers? What website? Yeah, online, JCAR, you know, all of these um, online stores, maybe even, I don't know, if um, JB Hi-Fi might sell them, but uh, you can find them anyway. They're, they're, not, they're cheap, 30, 40 bucks. And it will tell you instantly whether to open your windows or not, you know. So interesting. Oh my goodness, I never thought about that. So thank you so much. Is there anything else that we need to know about mold before we move on to EMFs? Uh, I guess the main thing is understand that the cause of mold is moisture, that mold is everywhere, that the focus is making sure that your home is decluttered as much as possible and it has as the least amount of dust as possible. Split systems are a very big problem. 95% of all the split system air conditioners that I look at are contaminated because they're not serviced regularly. If you're living in human environments, they need to be serviced at least twice a year. You know, as soon as you see mold doesn't grow on plastic, but as soon as you see a dirty split system, any form of dust in the split system, more often than not, it's going to be Aspergillus penicillin or Cladosporium. It's going to be contaminated. And when you turn it on, it's going to spread those spores throughout that, that environment. So that's really important. The second thing about split systems is most people put them on too low. You should not have the setting below 20 degrees. As soon as you have it below 20 degrees, it's not going to be condensing, cycling adequately. That creates condensation and that's going to be spreading spores throughout that room and the rest of the house. So that in itself is a problem. It's really important split systems are cleaned at least twice a year in humid environments. And if you see any dust in it at all, get someone from Sanitaire or a HVAC technician that's qualified through ARA to actually um, clean it properly. And that means coming in, bagging it, and using a high-pressure hose to get rid of fungal particulate, not just spraying a chemical and the condensing coil. So ask them how they clean split system. It should be bagged. High-pressure hose, you should be able to see the dirty water coming out. Um, it takes at least a couple of hours to do it properly. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So much to think about. Okay, so someone like myself who is soon going to be building my dream forever home what are some things that I need to be thinking about? Like I'm already thinking, okay, what materials are we using? Airflow in the home. You know, what are some other things that I need to think about or anyone who is wanting to build their dream home so that we don't have a mold issue? Yes. So the catch-22 is a lot of the new homes have to comply with energy ratings and these energy rating six-star energy rating homes, et cetera, having condensation and mold by their first winter because they don't have enough passive ventilation. So they often need heat recovery ventilation units in order to help improve the passive ventilation is critical. 40% of new builds are now showing condensation and mould by their first winter. So I'm very reluctant to build, I don't have the finance to build a new home, but there are certainly a lot of issues that are coming up with these new builds to comply with these standards, which is a conundrum because they seem to be, the tighter they are, the more unhealthier they are. If I'm building in a human environment, the first thing I want to see is eaves. Eaves are important to protect against wind-driven rain. What's eaves? Eaves, you know, like the hat of the house. It's a thing that comes over the walls. So it's like the hat of the home. Like, you know, in Queensland, you have the big verandas with the eaves hanging over the verandas to protect against wind-driven rain. Building a house without eaves where it's just the walls and then the roof is tightly on and there's no overhang is a recipe for disaster. You know, because you're not protecting it against wind-driven rain. That's a big problem. You want a roof that has a really good roof void. A flat roof is a recipe for disaster. Flat roofs, you know, when we're going to a site, a house built on a hill, on a hill at the bottom of a hill is a disaster. 
because unless you're willing to spend up to $100,000 in drainage, it's it's eventually going to fail. A lot of the new builds now are designed to fail, and I don't think it's malicious. I just think it's poor building practice because if it's built to the National Construction Code, it's not good enough. We know that. The Australian Stand 3744 waterproofing is not good enough. So if you're going to get a builder that builds to code, it's not going to be good enough. You need to make sure someone is actually doing much better than what's the National Construction Code or the Australian Standards because they are only designed to last seven-year building warranty. So let's start with waterproofing. With the waterproofing, if you're going to get a builder to build the house, don't let the builder do the waterproofing. Get a specialist company to come in and do the actual waterproofing by themselves. Now, you're going to spend double the amount on waterproofing. Instead of a 1000 bucks. you might spend at least $2,000 to waterproof that, that bathroom. But they'll do it as a system, and their technicians are only doing that. They've been, they're not only Cert 3 waterproofers and qualified through the TAPE system, but they have to also qualify through the waterproofing system. And it's just eluded me that Gripset is the company that I'd normally recommend to do all the waterproofing in the house because their technicians have to go through their own training and they will make sure that it is better than the Australian standards. And it will be designed to, to last at least 30 years, whereas if you get a builder to do it, most people don't realise that waterproofing is only designed and certified for seven years. Now, who can afford to do a bathroom reno every seven years? But that's what's happening in all the new builds. Um, and if they use essential oils inside or cleaners, citra cleaners, delimonene and natural cleaners with oranges and lemons on it, those essential oils, especially eucalyptus and the essential oils like lemon and tea tree and orange, etc., they're so good at degreasing. They'll actually compromise your waterproof membranes because the membranes are petrochemicals and that's what, you know, eucalyptus, fantastic to get rid of sticky stuff off any surface because it's such a great solvent. But people don't realise when they're using these essential oils in the bathrooms, they're actually potentially dissolving the waterproof membranes behind the grout. And now their seven-year bathroom will only last maybe two or three years if you're lucky. Whoa, that is huge because I clean with a lot of essential oils. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I make all of my own cleaning products with vinegar, water and essential oils. And little did I know that potentially I could just be ruining all of that ceiling in the bathrooms. Yeah. Cleaning, focus with your cleaning microfiber cloths. Bicarb soda mixed with dish liquid is a much better to remove scum and it's not going to compromise. So if it's on the tile, it's not a problem. It's the grout because in the Australian standard, grout is considered water resistant. So they don't need waterproofing behind the grout, believe it or not, which is ridiculous. That's why you want a proper people like Grip Set to come in and do the waterproofing that goes well beyond these national construction codes and complies with the new waterproofing technical committee guidelines that they have. They know this is a big problem, but unfortunately, the builders are only doing minimum practice. And that would be why a lot of mould breeds in the grout. Is that right? Well, the reason is because unless you're wiping the moisture off those surfaces, every shower, within 48 hours, that liquid water sitting there is going to support growth. Now, look, I have mould in my grout that I have to constantly clean off because I have to be honest, it's not practical with three teenagers and myself for them to be cleaning. They won't do that. They won't clean and wipe off those surfaces every shower. So the little bit of mould in the grout, is that going to be a health risk? Very unlikely. If, however, it's a titanic iceberg where there's high levels of fungal particulate growing in the walls behind the shower, that's a different thing. And our air sampling, when we go into air sample, that will show up high levels in the air sample, which we know then it's hidden in the walls or the roof or the subfloor. So 
you know, I know a little bit of mould in the grout, very unlikely to be an issue. Most people have it. It's a small risk. So we know it's a problem, but is the risk there? Probably unlikely. If it's an old shower, it's 30, 40, 50 years old, it hasn't been waterproofed since, and they've got asthma allergies, chronic fatigue symptoms, and the air samples are high, that's a big risk. Then you know you're going to have to get remediation. Oh, my goodness. So bleaching the grout in the bathrooms, what does that do? All bleaching does is change the colour. So first bleach, sodium hypochlorite, calcium hypochlorite, which is what bleach is, is a chlorine derivative. Chlorine is one of the strongest toxic chemicals to man and the environment. You know, CFCs in the environment, etc. They destroy the atmosphere, the ozone, etc. Chlorine are part of the halogens in the periodic table. And these halogens like fluoride, chlorine, bromine, iodine are very strong antibacterials. And they are anti-human. I mean, we are more bacteria than we are human cells. So they are very strong antibacterials for humans and they're lung and skin irritants and they cause a lot of adverse health effects. So chemicals like that should not be in a healthy home. They shouldn't be used at all. But if you're using bleach on mould, all you're doing is bleaching the mould and pulling out that melanin so you can't see the mould. That's all you're doing. Unfortunately, because fungi is so resilient, probably the most resilient species on this planet, they'll last well over COVID, well past COVID and nuclear bombs, etc. They use bleach as a food. Anything you throw at fungi, pretty much it'll use it as a food. That's why biocides are useless because it's so resilient. Whilst it might kill some of the spores, the 25% of spores that are still viable, it will mutate and adapt and use it as a food source. That's why using chemicals and mold is futile. The focus of remediation must be physical removal. Would squeegeeing the shower after every shower be helpful? Because that's what we do. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Because remember, the source of mould and moisture and growth is liquid water or water vapour. So when you have liquid water sitting on your tiles of the shower and the doors, within 48 hours, you've got microbial growth. So by squeegeeing it, fantastic. That will prevent microbial growth in that cubicle. And the other one, if you're building, is make sure you have a tray, a shower tray, a base. Don't ever build a bathroom where you have tiled shower floors. That's insane because the waterproofing isn't designed. It won't last. So you'll end up get penetration that will get through the roof, through the the floor, etc. You must have a tray. Now, people who are chemically sensitive or, you know, get SIRS, chronic inflammatory response, the best showers for them are those plastic cubicles you see in the caravan parks in those portables. It's one plastic moulded shower that has no grout. There's no way that moisture can penetrate the walls. It's ugly, but it's the best because there's unless it's cracked, it's fibreglass, you're not going to get any penetration because the grout is the weak points. So having a shower where you walk from the shower to the bathroom and it's flush is a disaster. That'll last maybe seven years if you're really lucky. So you want a tray that you step into the shower that has positive ball to the to the actual plug is important. That's far better. But a lot of architects, because it looks aesthetically nice to have these beautiful tiled floors that is the same level as the, the rest of the bathroom, is a disaster. That won't last more than two, three years from our experience. So what we do is we offer a service when people are building on how to build a healthy home. We work with the homeowner and the architect. Architects don't often like what we say because their focus is on energy efficiency and the design to look good, which is fine. But unfortunately, that often comes 
clashes with the health and it often increases condensation and moisture problems and especially electromagnetic field issues if if they're not thinking about the building materials and the passive ventilation and the condensation, etc. Okay, so... I think we need to work together because we have our designs. We've got an incredible architect who is a dear friend of ours. The designs are absolutely beautiful. I'm so excited. I think I need to work with you. I'm going to send you the designs and maybe you can tear it apart and tell us what we need to do. Because, you know, even just thinking about the shower then, in our last house, we had one of those showers that looked beautifully, aesthetically pleasing to the eye where there was no tray that you stepped in. However, we squeegeed after every single shower, every shower. My husband was meticulous with this. So I don't know if that counteracts, but, you know, we did our best. Good. And that's fantastic because very few people do that. I don't do that with three teenagers. So, you know, once a month I'm there going with my bicarb soda and, and dish liquid and my bow products, et cetera, and cleaning it all off because I know it's I'm yelling at them all the time. I just can't I don't want that relationship with my kids because I'm yelling at them a lot for not doing their homework. But you know, that's fantastic. Changing your behavior, which is what you're doing, bringing in air filters, bringing in dehumidifiers, you're doing a lot of really good stuff that'll help reduce the fungal particulate in that environment. The last thing I want to mention in relation to building a healthy home, especially in a humid environment, is to really get the water vapour barriers, the wraps right. You want to make sure that there's intelligent vapour barriers so it allows water vapour to move through because this is the problem with a lot of the new builds that then they haven't thinking about how water vapour moves through the building envelope. It needs to allow water vapour to move through and not wet the insulation in the process and it needs to prevent liquid water coming in. So if you get that right, this is where ProClimber is brilliant. They have established through lots of physics how to build different homes in different climates throughout Australia. So the wall construction, what we call the building envelope, which is the roof, the walls and the floor, need to be very specific for that microclimate. And of course, the water vapour materials that they're actually using need to be specific for that. So what we build in Melbourne is going to look very, very different, not look different, but the construction of the building envelope is going to be different in terms of how that wall cavity should be. Mm. This is so amazing. And we'll link to everything that you've mentioned in the show notes. And I am going to work with you for our build because this is going to be our forever home. And I want it to be a healthy home. And I just want to make sure that we're doing the best. So we can chat about that offline after this. But is there anything else mold related that we need to know? Oh, if you get me started on <laughs> look, we've mentioned the adverse health effects. We've mentioned the importance of air filters and dehumidifiers, especially in human environments. I think just thinking about water vapor in the house and trying to reduce the exposure, making sure your kitchen fan is venting all that steam to the atmosphere as opposed to the roof. A lot of the range hoods we see aren't doing anything. They're just recirculating it in the kitchen. And the thing I ask my clients is, how long do you smell the cooking odours in the house before you don't smell them after you've cooked? And if it's more than 15 minutes, there's a problem with ventilation. And especially if they're smelling in the other end of the house because it's going into the roof and they're travelling to the other parts of the house, that's a problem. So when you're building, you want to make sure that that exhaust is being filtered to the atmosphere, that there's ductwork from the exhaust fan of the bathroom, from the laundry, from the kitchen that's being ducted to the outside through the roof. That's really important and it's insulated. 
Um, that's something that most architects won't think about in terms of water vapor. Otherwise, you get all this water vapor in the roof and then it, the insulation gets wet and now it's not energy efficient anymore. Now you've got microbial growth because insulation is the perfect macas for mold. Oh my gosh. This is all just such amazing information. Thank you so much. And I'll point everyone to your books, to your programs, to everything to dive even deeper on this topic and they can work with you. But let's move to EMFs. Let's talk about EMFs in our home. We all know, well, I'm pretty sure we all know that this is not good for us. And now more than ever, we are exposed to EMFs. We've got Wi-Fi hitting us from all angles. We've got 5G. What can we do to protect ourselves? And talk to me about what we can do in our home and, and if we're potentially building a new home, like how we can do that so that those are not going to affect us. So we personally don't have Wi-Fi on in our home unless we actually need it. We're hardwired into the wall. And if we need Wi-Fi, we turn it on and then we turn it straight back off once we're done using it. Fantastic. That's great. The thing with electromagnetic fields is we've increased our exposures by 18 orders of magnitude compared to when our grandparents were born. So to these man-made electromagnetic fields, and this is through, especially since 3G was introduced in the early 2000s, we introduced a digital technology which has never been exposed to humans before. And now, of course, our children are exposed from the cradle to the grave. We are in a big mass experiment. Um, we know these radio frequencies emitted from the Wi-Fi devices impact the body at a biological level. They cause, they particularly focus and act on the central nervous system in the brain, the heart and the testes, where they act on the cell membrane and influence voltage-gated calcium channels which ultimately result in high levels of oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, which is what the energy produced from the mitochondria and potentially cell death. They indirectly cause cancer by influencing oxidative stress and causing DNA strand breaks. So the way they cause cancer is not like ionising radiation from nuclear bombs or radon, for example, but they're causing increasing risk of cancers by doing two things, increasing oxidative stress and causing DNA strand breaks, we now know if you're using a cell phone next to your head on one side of your head for 30 minutes or more per day, for 10 years, you more than double your incidence of uh, acoustic neuroma and glioma, which are two forms of rare brain cancers, which have now escalated significantly in the last 10 years. The latency periods for brain tumours are generally between 15 and 25 years. It's only been since early 2000s where mass populations started using Wi-Fi technology and mobile phone telephony. And as a result of that, we're expecting now the brain tumours to start increasing significantly, and they already have. If the use of the mobile phone is before the age of 15, that significantly escalates the risk because their brains are still developing, even though they have good neuroplasticity. So the key is... Wherever these electromagnetic fields are, the closer they are to your person, the higher the risk. So when we get called in to do EMF assessments, the client's going, I'm concerned about my smart meter, I'm concerned about the mobile phone base station, I'm concerned about the neighbor's smart meter, etc. Um, you know, I think I'm getting exposed. And the reality is the greatest exposure is that. The mobile phone. The thing closest to your person is the thing causing the highest exposure. So I'll address, well, as building biologists, my industry I started 20 years ago, We'll listen to the client's needs, we'll address all of that, but we'll show them with our meters the highest exposures is the one closest to your person and that's going to be your cell phone. That's why it's critical, that's never against your head, that if you're going to use it, you either text or you use a loudspeaker or you use an earpiece. If you keep this away at least 30 centimetres from your person, you reduce your exposure by 90% to the radio frequencies. So that's important. 
The next thing is you never charge this in your bedroom. Your bedroom is the most important place to set up. If you're not sleeping well, your health declines. And it's not a coincidence that almost every chronic disease, including SIRS, is marked by sleep disturbances. And this is the thing with natural therapists and doctors. If they don't address the client's ability to sleep, nothing you do with your diet or lifestyle will improve your health. You need to sleep well. And if you don't, then nothing improves. So that's why, you know, if the sleep is disturbed and every, and they've done everyone else, they've seen 10 practitioners, which most people by the time they see brain biologists have gone to 8 to 10 practitioners, the first thing we focus is the bedroom. Do they have Wi-Fi enabled devices? Where's their extenders? Where's their boosters? Their routers are emitting high levels of radiation, high levels. Many of the Telstra routers have multiple antennas in it and they're emitting the same type of radiation as a mobile phone base station. They are designed that when people pass your house, they can use your router to maintain their phone signal as they're passing by. That's what's going on because it's cheaper for telecommunications to use the routers in people's homes instead of erecting a you know $200,000 mobile phone base station. People don't know that. It's a problem. So that's why you must hardwire your home, which is excellent that you have. My house is all hardwired. My kids, when we hardwired it, I thought there was going to be a mutiny because it meant when they use their laptops, they have to be connected to the blue Ethernet cable. And, of course, at their dad's home, he's got Wi-Fi and they can go anywhere in the house outside. And it's like, Mum, we can't, you know, we're connected here. We can't move. I said, you've got to change your behaviour, kids. So every time they have their Wi-Fi on connected to their mobile phone, I just put the metres on. It's going, it's so annoying. I'm going, that's what your body's absorbing right now. You can't hear it when it's not on, but when the metres are on, they're just freaking out and they're going, Mum, that's so annoying. So, okay, use the Ethernet cable. So, I mean, my PhD, which I've just submitted six months ago, still waiting for it to be marked, was looking at the impact of environmental exposures on human health. And one of those studies I did was a randomised controlled trial looking at the impact of a baby monitor on healthy adult sleep, and it was statistically significant. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. Its impact on brain waves and sleep was significant. And the reason I did that study is because I see so many babies who don't sleep with baby monitors because they're pumping out huge amounts of radio frequencies that are impacting their sleep. If they have disturbed sleep, they're going to mother-baby units in hospitals, and it's just a matter of turning that off, not using the baby monitor or moving them away from, you know, a high source like a smart meter or relocating bedrooms. And these people are going, I, I can't believe that my kid's sleeping. You don't know how many practitioners I've been. I've been to the hospital and now my kids sleep and it's that. It's just moving the cot two meters. Oh, yeah. Electromagnetic fields cause sleep disturbances. Yes. Oh, my goodness. So in our last house, like we've literally only been in this house for two weeks. So in our last house, we were hardwired in. We never had to turn on the Wi-Fi. But this house, we don't get phone reception here. So if I want to do something on my phone, I have to turn on the Wi-Fi, quickly do that on my phone, and then I turn the Wi-Fi off. So again, that never had to happen before. In our last home as well, I didn't have a baby monitor because it was a smaller home. I could hear my daughter if I was in the kitchen during the day and she was having her sleep. I didn't need a monitor. Now I need a baby monitor and it is on the other end of my bedroom. And it is a low radiation one and hers is on the other side of her bedroom and it is the safest baby monitor system. So it's got zero wireless emissions and it has won a lot of awards. It's uh, The brand is 
BB Care, B-E-B Care. I'm not sure if you have heard of it. It's not a video one. It's just audio. And I only use it when she is having her sleep. And it is, ideally, I wouldn't have to use one. But in this house right now, I, I do need to because during the day, she's down the other end of the house and I want to be able to hear her. But again, like I said, it's on the other side of the bedroom in her room and it's on the other side of the bedroom in my room. So. I mean, I'm doing my best with that. What are your thoughts on that? Baby monitors that are hardwired, so they only work when they're plugged into the grid. So you plug them into the PowerPoint and they're not wireless. If you're moving around and it's not attached to a wire, it's going to be using Wi-Fi technology. So I would say you're best to use something that's hardwired. So you have to plug the baby monitor in for it to work and it's using the building wiring and then your antenna's also plugged in. If it's wireless, it means that, you know, there's no plugs between the antenna and the receiver unit. If there is, then the manufacturer will say it's low radiation because it complies with the ICNEP standards. I can tell you the ICNEP standards are terrible. They're not health-based standards. So I would, I have my backup with a lot of manufacturers because the last two decades of researching this, I can see that um, public health largely doesn't exist, especially with electromagnetic fields. There's no standards that go beyond 30-minute exposures. So when the manufacturers say it's, it complies with standards, I already get my backup because there's no standards for beyond 30 minutes. And secondly, I would ask if it's plugged in through a wire and corded, then it's probably going to be good. If it's Wi-Fi, it's just the receiver in the unit, you can walk around the house, then I know it's Wi-Fi enabled and it's emitting radio frequencies. So without testing that, I won't know the level of exposure. Mm, so mine is Wi-Fi, so I don't need to plug it in. I can walk around the house with it. I can leave it in the kitchen with me. That's very, very interesting. Do you have any favorite brands? I don't recommend them. In my book, Healthy Home, Healthy Family with Baby Monitors, I took a bit about that. That's why I did my study on that specifically, is I would recommend CCTV. If your child is at risk of SIDS, et cetera, and you need a baby monitor or it's at the other end of the house, whatever, then you need hardwired CCTV or hardwired options because all the Wi-Fi options are not will not comply with the building biology standards. Okay. Sorry to say that. <laughs> no, no, this is really important. And now that we are building our home and we want to have more babies, like this is stuff that I need to think about because it's all just food for thought. And once we have the wisdom and the knowledge, we can then do better. So don't be sorry at all. In terms of EMF, what else do we need to know and how can we protect ourselves? So the first thing is the mobile phone. That's going to get your biggest bang for your buck. Reduce your exposure by how you use this. Don't put it near your head. And if you do put it near your head, always swap sides because then the brain tumors won't like you get double the amount of lifespan <laughs> in terms of that. The next thing is, of course, your laptops and things, having them hardwired like you have, fantastic. That's the best case scenario because they'll be emitting Wi-Fi. So unless you... Again, with this, make sure your mobile data is switched off because often you can turn it on flight mode, but they still have other antennas that may switch on. Don't have this in your bedroom when you're sleeping. So the main thing is when you're sleeping, you want to make sure there's no Wi-Fi enabled devices, no printers, no computers, no mobile phones. You want to check the other side of the wall of your bed head. You want to make sure there's no inverters, solar inverters. You want to make sure there's no meter panels, especially smart meters. 
you want to make sure there's no other computers or other people's Wi-Fi-enabled devices in adjacent rooms immediately around you in order to create a quiet environment. When it comes to EMFs, you want to be exposed to the natural terrestrial radiation, which is the Earth's magnetic field and the Schumann resonance. And generally, you need to be out of the inner city areas to do that because the inner city areas are just blanketed with these high levels of radiation because everyone's got a router, booster, etc. So the bedroom is the most important when it comes to my cell phone, which I love the technology, is I we make sure we charge it in the kitchen, which is a few rooms away from all the bedrooms, and it's um, charged well away. So that's the main thing that I'd highly recommend. In terms of other EMF sources is look at where the smart meter is and make sure that there's nothing like a living space or you're not spending time on the other side wall of the smart meter. With electromagnetic fields, it's not just about the problem, the source, but it's about the timing of exposure. How much time are you spending in front of that source? So making sure that if you do have a smart meter on the other side of the wall, that you're, you don't sleep in that room or you don't have your favourite couch against that wall. If you have to sleep in the room, then you make sure you put the bedhead on the opposite side of the wall to reduce your exposure to the magnetic field and the radio frequencies. So it's about as you double the distance away from the source, you reduce your exposure by 75%. So that's the main thing with EMFs. That's the good news about EMFs. With extenders and boosters, they're like routers. So if you have, you know, poor connection, like the good news with your house is you've got poor connections because there's probably not a lot of mobile phone base stations in close proximity. The bad news is when you use your phone, it's maybe only on one bar, which means it's pumping out much higher levels of radiation to maintain that signal. So that's the negative news. So I would say, can you use VoIP or Skype to ring people instead of your cell phone? And that would be the best way to you to connect to other people without exposing yourself to high levels of radiation. Yes. And what about when our phone is on aeroplane mode? Is that emitting anything? Most likely no. Sometimes though the mobile data can still be on, etc. So you just need to check in your settings that it's all switched off. But generally flight mode is a good way to go. If you've got kids with iPads and things, you know, download your app, then put it into flight mode and make sure they don't have it on their lap because it still can emit a magnetic field from the battery. Having it on a surface is important. So yes, flight mode is definitely a, a good option and will significantly reduce the exposure. Talk to me about PowerPoints. So for example, where I'm sitting right now, under the desk, there's a PowerPoint and there's like seven things plugged in. I've got my laptop, I've got my microphone, I've got the dehumidifier, I've got a million things plugged in, right? So at night, I switch that all off. The modem is connected to that as well. So at night, I switch that off, right? Is that enough? Do I need to switch it off and pull out the plug as well? Or is just switching off big power boards with 5,000 things plugged into them enough? Well, with the power boards, it's the charges often emit a magnetic field, but the beautiful thing about that is they drop off quickly with distance. So it's probably exposing your feet. By the time it gets to your lap and where you're sitting, the exposure is likely to be less, a lot less, and may not even, it might be more like background levels. When it comes to turning off PowerPoints, just turning the switch off, turning it off is enough at the PowerPoint. You don't need to unplug. However, I would do that in the sleeping room. So anything that's plugged in in the bedroom, I turn off at the PowerPoint and that's sufficient to cut down the power, the current coming through the walls and the building wiring. I go a step further and I have a demand switch in my switchboard that when I turn the master switch off in my bedroom, it cuts the power to all the bedrooms, which means there's not even electric field, no magnetic field, nothing. And then, of course, when the kids switch the lights on, they can go back on. 
But uh, yeah, that's what I would do. That's taken it to a whole new level. No, we used to do the exact same thing every single night. It was the last thing that we did. We had a power board, that one switch that switched off every single thing in our entire home, except for the dishwasher and the fridge, because we need those on, because the dishwasher would be going at nighttime. So it kept the fridge and the freezer and the dishwasher on. But we used to do that every night. And we don't do it in this house because we're charging things and different things were connected. But we're going to build that into our next house where we can just flick one switch and everything goes off. And it's just such a good thing to do. And it's such a great practice to get into. And you feel it. This is all energy and you feel that frequency. So I love all of this. My phone is majority of the time it's on airplane mode, which is really great. And because I know how important that is and, you know, turning off the Wi-Fi, getting hardwired in, these are two really low hanging fruits, things that people can do today that will make a huge difference. Just turn your phone on airplane mode and turn off the Wi-Fi and plug in. So I love that. Talk to me about building, building our dream home. What are some things in terms of EMF that we could think about? Lighting is really important. You want full spectrum lights if you can. And obviously, you know, your, your task lighting, you want to make sure that you're not going to expose yourself to high levels of blue light at night. A lot of people, when they look at the blue light, they start wearing their, their glasses during the day, which is ridiculous because you want blue light during the day to switch melatonin, you know, to suppress melatonin, etc. So because you've got serotonin levels going on and you want to be active, etc. So they look at this and then misunderstand what the purpose is. But the lighting is important because there's lighting coming out that's Li-Fi, that's Wi-Fi enabled, that can even hear your conversations and emits radiation, radio frequencies like Wi-Fi enabled devices. I don't want them in my home. I was at the lighting store yesterday and he said, oh, look, um, here's a full spectrum light, which is great, but you can, you know, use it, attach it to your Google Home. I went, oh, my God, so it's Wi-Fi enabled. It, You know, so it's communicating and I can just say, hey, Google, switch the lights on. That's the last thing I want. I don't want a smart home. I wrote an article once for the journal for a magazine called Smart Home, Not So Smart. I'm completely surprised they actually published it because the level of radiation in these smart homes has just gone to a whole new level. And, of course, privacy, cyber attacks, all of these things have gone when you bring in these smart technologies, let alone the radiation that they emit. So lighting is important. You want full spectrum lights if you can, which are available now, spotlights, etc., cetera, um, downlights. Unfortunately, a lot of them are still quite orangey. So at night it looks like the red light district in your house and quite funky, that's not appropriate. I couldn't do that. But for task lighting, I'm happy to do that. I have carbon lights in my home, which are an orangey glow. So just to give you an idea, they, they are those lights. They're carbon lights and they're beautiful orangey glow. They're not like the yellow ones, like the traditional ones that are blue light emitting. So I have different types of lights in my home. So it creates more of a lovely ambience and it doesn't emit high levels of blue light. So that's the first thing that I would do in terms of building. Second thing is have your smart meter well away from the home and your inverters. If you're going to have solar, make sure it's in the driveway, make sure it's on the fence, make sure it's not near the home or make sure it's on the garage, but don't have it attached to the house. That's really, really important because all the wiring is going to be coming in there and then it has to go throughout the the home. So those areas, if they're bedrooms, are going to be exposed to higher levels of current and things. So being mindful how you're going to wire the house 
ideally to prevent that spaghetti wiring where they get the circuit and then they split the cables everywhere that creates high electric fields. You want to try and contain your cables. Coaxial shielded cabling is great, but it's seven times more expensive to wire your house that way. So that's a, you know an extra 20 grand cost potentially if you're going to do that properly. What you would do is in the house is you'd wire it not on the floor but wire it in the roof where it's further away from you as opposed to the floor and have the cabling going down the hallway or to the centre of the house and then coming out to the room so the power points are closest. That way the exterior walls are free from power points and you can put your bed heads, et cetera, not have any problems with electric fields, magnetic fields, et cetera. Simple things like that will go a long way. So many power boards and so many power points are behind the headboards. Yeah. So if you're electrically sensitive, that can be an issue. For most people, a power point behind the bed head, not such a problem. It's what they plug into the power point that becomes an issue. So if it's got a charger in it, transformer in it, like your mobile phone chargers, if there's a power board, then it's going to be drawing more current. So that becomes more an issue. So I mean, I have power points next to my bed and I just have a lamp that I switch off at the power point, like you said, at night before I go to bed. Yeah. And that's definitely okay to still have it in there, but be switched off. Like no current is going to be running from the wall to the socket. No, the current is is basically movement of electrons through the building wiring when an appliance is in use. So unless the lamp is on or whatever's attached to the power board is in use, so the electric blanket has to be heating. The lamp has to be actually lighting. If the unit isn't in use, it's not drawing current, so you won't get a magnetic field. However, there'll be electric fields sitting there because that's the voltage, the electric field sitting in the power point. If you're electrically sensitive, then having power points near your bed isn't going to help because they're sensitive to the electric field. And now we're concerned that a lot of dirty power created from the smart devices and from two-way switches and inverters, solar inverters are massive high levels of dirty electricity that run through your building wiring once you get an inverter. So that's the catch-22 where the green movement can actually create more issues for people who are highly electrically sensitive. I haven't had one person with electrical sensitivity be able to stay in a house that has a solar inverter. It can be done, but again, you know, it's going to be more than double the normal cost because you need coaxial shielded cabling, which is expensive. You need to put your inverter away from the house, you know, all of these things. It can be done, but in the end, it's going to be the cost. Yes, but it is your home and you spend Well, I spend a lot of time in my home. I work from home. This is my sanctuary. So for me, creating a wellness sanctuary is so important. I love my home. I love spending time in it. I work from home. So it's really important that you, you know, invest in it. People spend so much on cars and new cars and new clothes and things like that. You know, for me, it's like all about the home. You mentioned electric blankets. What are your thoughts? Look, electric blankets do emit high, a lot of them emit, well, obviously, high electric fields. They can be an issue for magnetic fields. I would say to people, if they need an electric blanket, that they turn it off at the power point before they go into bed. So they heat it up, but then turn it off at the power point before they go into bed. A lot of people have the electric blanket on all year round and they turn it, it's at the power point, it's switched on and it's creating high electric fields that their body has to deal with. That's really bad. So with the electric blanket, unplug it when it's not being used in summer. And then if you have to have an electric blanket, put it in, but turn it off at the power point before you get into bed. Don't have it running during the night. Or use a hot water bottle. Hot water, hot partner, flannel sheet. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and a <course> of woman. 
<laughs> yes. Do you know what I've been doing since it's been really cold? Uh, this is a little trick and tip for everyone. So my husband and I were starting to wake each other up. You know, every time either of us moved, we would wake each other up. And when you've given birth and you have been doing night feeding and my daughter is now night weaned and I finally was getting these delicious eight hours of sleep. And if he moved, I would get so upset. I'm like, don't wake me up. Like I would get so angry. So we started having separate dunas or duvets, whatever you call them. This is a game changer, people. Have a separate doona to your partner because every time he moves, I don't feel it anymore. So what I've been doing, because it's winter right now in Australia, I have doubled over my doona. So it is like so delicious and warm under there. You do not need an electric blanket. You do not need a water bottle. It is so nice. And it also acts as like a mini weighted blanket because it's a bit heavier. So there's a little tip and trick for everybody. Yeah. Well, look what the Europeans do. They have two single beds put together Two Smart. separate mattresses, one big king sheet over two single mattresses and two separate dunas. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. That's the way to do it. <laughs> okay. We've covered mold. We've covered EMFs. Let's talk about chemicals in our home. How can we reduce the chemicals in our wellness sanctuary? That's a big question. Yes. Really think about what you're buying. A lot of things people buy, they don't need. We've got this consumer is constant buying stuff we don't need. Go back to basics, you know what I mean? When it comes to personal care stuff, if you can't eat it, think twice about using it. Use coconut to remove your makeup. You know, think about stuff that you really need. It. Cleaning products, microfiber cloths is important. Bicarb, dish liquid, you know, obviously I support the Abode brand, which was used, which we developed for people with chemical sensitivities. But things like perfumes, air fresheners are really toxic. Get rid of them. Pesticides, you know, have fly screens in and don't leave food around the house so you don't need chemicals. Pesticides are some of the worst chemicals you can bring in because they impact the central nervous system. They can impact reproduction and fertility. So that's really, really important. But the big ones for me are perfumes, air fresheners, pesticides, um, reduce that as much as possible. With chemicals, you know, you're cleaning, as I said, microfiber cloths and getting rid of dust that way as opposed to using any form of cleaning chemicals, etc. when you don't need to. Just really think about stuff you buy. You know, every generation we're exposing each generation more and more with more chemicals according to these large population biomonitoring studies in the US and other countries. And there's a point where the body can't cope with that anymore. And I think the epidemic of autism and ADHD and these neurodevelopmental disorders in children is largely due to these chemicals that each generation is exposed to that goes through the placenta, through the breast milk. A lot of these, most of these environmental chemicals are lipophilic. So they go through the breast milk and the baby's at the end of the food chain. So now when we're doing histories as naturopaths, we need to look at the grandparents' exposure, then the mother's exposure, because it's going through the placenta into the breast milk. So if that mother was exposed to being in renovated homes where there was lead, that lead is being passed through the placenta and these kids are born with high lead levels. I've had quite a few that weren't due to their environment here, but due to the exposure from the mother. So you have to take the mother's history. What chemicals was she exposed to? Was she grew up on a farm? Was she near a golf course? Like you know, if you're a block away from a golf course, you're probably going to have high levels of pesticides in your body from the testing that I've seen with my my clients. 
So these things are important. Thinking about chemical exposures in proximity, chemicals from traffic-related air pollutants, living on busy roads come at a cost for asthma and allergies and chemical exposures. So in my book, Healthy Home, Healthy Family, I go through what the exposure zones, I look at how to reduce your chemical load, and I'm about to create a course and launch a course on mould and condensation for the public on how to reduce your exposure, how mould affects the body, and more importantly, how to prevent it based on a lot of the principles we've talked about today. Beautiful. And yes, you mentioned golf courses. Golf courses and parks are some of the most toxic places because of the chemicals that they spray on the grass. So if you can avoid going to a golf course and avoid parks, do it. You know, I take my daughter to the beach and I'm so grateful that I live so close to the beach, but you know, that's her little playground, the beach. Yeah. It's a catch-22, isn't it? Because you want to be connected to nature. You want the kids to exercise and get off their digital device. I would just find out when the council's spraying then make sure you're not around that area for a, a week or so, give or take, um, because I really try and encourage the kids to get out in the greenery. Fortunately, I'm close to Warrandyte River, which, you know, we're walking there regularly and other amazing national parks. But they will normally warn you when they're spraying, etc. So just be mindful when that's happening. And I've often walked past people spraying before and I've said, what are you spraying? I just ask them. I'm like, what are you spraying? And they'll tell me. So if if you are concerned or if you're walking past someone whilst they're spraying something, just ask them. And then you can find out when they're doing it and you can avoid it at that time. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I've got a couple more questions for you. Let's pretend you have a magic wand. And you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world besides your book, which a thousand percent needs to be. Do you know what? It doesn't just need to be in the curriculum. There needs to be a class on this, on healthy homes. There needs to be a whole assignment, a whole year dedicated to studying and understanding this. I wish, I wish. And when I build my dream school one day, I will add, you can come and teach that class. (laughs) So are you asking me what book I would recommend? Yes, one book for teenagers all over the world. One book. It doesn't have to be on health. It could be on any topic, but just one book that you feel is really important. Yeah, no, I would put in Conversations with God by Neil Walsh. Oh. That's the book I would teach them that they create their own reality, that they don't need to look outside themselves in order to achieve happiness, that how they are being determines what they attract, that looking for wealth and looking for you know relationships that will fulfil a need doesn't happen that way, that the realities of growing up in a society where if you have the right career and the right amount of money, you'll be happy is actually not the way it is. Connection is the most important and the most important is your relationship with yourself. Conversation with God is I'm not a religious person. I would say I believe in something beyond what I am. I believe I'm a spirit having a, a physical incarnation. And those texts and those volumes are a game changer because they teach you that you create your reality by being in control of what you think, what you say and what you do, and more importantly, how you're being. You're a human being, not a human doing. Our society teaches do this, do that career, do that for wealth. It's not doing. It's how you are being because by being a certain way, being your best version of yourself, which is ultimately why we're here, what is the best version of Cole? How can I create that version? And how how does she look? How would she talk? How would she interact with people? How would she dress? More importantly, how would I feel? And now I be that. So let's be that. And now notice the synchronicity of what happens around me. And it's profound. That's how I live my life. Mm, beautiful. Me too. 
I love it. And I have actually had Neil Donald Walsh on the podcast. You should go and listen to the episode because that is one of my all-time favorite books. It is the best. And if you have not read Conversations with God, do yourself a favor. It is life-changing. That book was life-changing for me. One of the best books I've ever read. So go and get it. I'll link to it in the show notes. And you need to go and listen to the episode because it's such a good episode if that's one of your favorite books. Okay. Talk to me about how your day looks. I love hearing about people's morning routines and just your healthy rituals and habits. Talk to us about how your day, like a typical day in your life unfolds. And I know no two days are ever the same, but talk to me about what you do in your day and your rituals and routines. All right. So I get up at quarter to six. I then take my two boys, my boxer dogs. I've got a seven-month-old boxer and a nine-year-old. And then we go down to the river. So we first stop off, I stop off at my favourite coffee shop that opens at six. And then I talk to the locals and gas bag and have a look at the newspapers to see what rubbish is being fed to the, the population. And then I go to the river and walk for up to an hour that the dog's free and they liaise with all the other dogs, etc. that they know. And then I'll go back by about 7.30, get the kids ready for school. And then they catch the bus and then at 8 o'clock I'll start, sit down at my computer and eat that frog. What's the biggest frogs I need to eat today? Things I don't want to do first, but I know if I do it first, it's going to make my day because then I'm, the rest of the day is going to be good. <laughs> check my emails, etc. And then I will normally go outside, check the chooks and you know see if there's any eggs that they've got there, etc. And, and just sit in the backyard for a few minutes, come back inside, then I'll have brunch. So often that will be either porridge or uh, leftovers from the night before. I would then have all my herbs and supplements at that time, my vitamin D, my liquid from my naturopath, etc., and, of course, my activated bees. And then I would do more work and then I'll have lunch at about 2.30. I'd normally go for, sometimes I'll go for a walk around by myself around a park that's really isolated and that's when I'll do a lot of my affirmations and listen to Neil, Donald Walsh or affirmations or listen to great music and think about my best version of myself. How does that look? What's in my thinking? Just catch myself thinking if it's not my best version. And then I'll come home and the kids will be there by then and then I'll start sorting out what's for dinner, either start cooking or doing something like that. And then I very rarely watch TV, so that probably doesn't happen most of the time. Maybe every two weeks, except when they're, they're dads, I might watch a series of something completely ridiculous to get my mind off work, liaise with my staff during the day, and then have dinner. And I'm normally in bed between 9.30 and 10 because I need a lot of sleep. I find if I sleep well, then I wake up, you know. I'm like an ever-ready battery. I'm sort of pretty full on during the day. Hit the pillow at night. Most of the time I sleep through and then wake up 5.45, get up by about 6 and then start the day again. Beautiful. I love it. I love your day. It's so beautiful. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Go for it. What is one thing, one of the most important things that we can do today for our health? Just one thing. Oh, God, there's so many that come to mind. What's the first thing we can do for our health? You know, start reading labels. Don't take what's on the supermarket shelf that it's tested. Just assume everything's not tested and you're responsible for your own health. Start reading. Start getting on, you know, the internet and, and getting good information on um, chemicals in, in everything. Don't take anything for granted. Take responsibility for your own health. Mm, I love that. 
such a powerful tip. And that's not just for your food, it's for your cleaning products, for the clothes you wear, for everything that you purchase. Take responsibility for it. I love that. Okay, next one. What is one thing that we can do for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. I think listen twice as much as we talk. That's why we have two ears and one mouth. It's important, I think, to listen to, to especially people who've lived, who have a lot of experience, the elderly are gold in terms of what they can provide the younger generations. That's why it's so disheartening to see how we treat the elderly. I think we have gold sitting in the nursing homes and we're not utilising that source like we did in the tribes. We put them there and like they're taxing, they're, they're affecting, you know, our tax. It's disgusting the way we treat the elderly. I think there's so much knowledge to gain from listening to these elders that we've shoved in a um, nursing home and I, and I feel really sad about that as opposed to where my parents grew up in, in Holland where they respect their elderly and they treat them really well. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. There is so much wisdom and I only had one grandma that I met. All of them had passed by the time I was born. The other three had passed. And my nonna, she lived until she was 95. And I would just love sitting with her. She didn't speak a lot of English. She was Italian. So she, I just would love sitting with her and hearing when she did share stories. I would ask my dad to kind of translate a little bit when she spoke about her stories. And to be honest, I would just love sitting with her and feeling her energy because she just radiated love and I just loved sitting with her so much. So there is so much wisdom in the elderly. I absolutely agree with you. Okay, last one. What is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Love ourselves. Read conversations with God. Realize that the most important relationship you have is yourself because how you relate to yourself determines what people you attract in your life. So until you can look in the mirror honestly and, and really look at what you're staring at. And once you love that person and forgive that person and the people in your life and stop living in the past, only then can you create the best version of yourself and, and create an incredible life. You're not a victim anymore. When you're a victim, you give your power away. So it's really important to take responsibility for your past. It's important to live below your neck and allow, give your body a voice to do somatic experience therapy, primal therapy. I think psychology for me and a lot of my clients was a waste of time because you can talk things to the cows come home. Until you drop into your body below your neck and give your body a voice, you can't often shift your patterns and the generational patterns that you've inherited. So it's really important to do that. And I think once you love yourself and you can live by yourself and be happy within your being, you've got it. You've got the gold. And that's when you create a, an incredible life. Mm, beautiful. Totally agree with you. This has been amazing. Is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom or anything that you wanted to talk about? No, I think we talked about it all. I think it's just don't be hard on yourself. You know, when we come in to do assessments of buildings, there's a lot of guilt, but how are you to know that the way the system works and the exposure standards are not health-based standards? So it's like a lot of the public come to terms with the reality when they get a building biologist in that they have to take responsibility for their own health and not just make, don't give their power away. Don't feel guilty about it. Being a mum, I used to say, just give me a T-shirt. I'm going to be guilty for the rest of my life. I suck at this. <laughs> 
And I just said, kids, I'm doing the best I can. Now that I'm, I have more knowledge, I know better. And that's okay because when your parents at times do stuff that you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that, whatever, it's okay. I'm me. I accept me for who I am and I notice my kids do too because, you know, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal as a parent because I know I stuff up at times and that's okay. It's part of life. Adversity is an important part of the human condition. Without adversity, you can't experience divinity. You know, you need to have that relativity. That's that's what life is. And we are all doing the very best we can. And that's all that we can do. You know, it's so important that we remind ourselves of that, especially with the parenting journey, because I know the G's, the G's can pop up a lot. So let go of the G's and just know that you're doing your best and be honest with your kids and go, hey guys, I stuffed up there. I'm doing my best. And that's all that we can do and apologize if you need to, but it's really a powerful, powerful stuff. I want to thank you so much for not only all the work that you do in the world, you are helping so many people. You are such an amazing human being, full of so much wisdom and knowledge. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for helping and serving so many people. I want to know what I personally and the listeners can do to give back and serve you today. How can we serve you? Wow. No one's ever asked me that. I'm not sure. I'm actually not sure how to answer that. But I'm very grateful for your feedback. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me. Oh, you are so welcome. And your book landed on my desk many, many years ago. And then it landed on my desk again recently and it could not have come at a better time because we are building our dream home right now. Well, we've got the designs. So I am going to definitely chat to you about how we can create an even better wellness sanctuary. So thank you so much for the work that you do. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you for another 17 hours, but thank you for all that you do. You are such a wealth of knowledge and I've loved today's conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. That was incredible. Now, just remember that there's always more that we can be doing when it comes to creating a wellness sanctuary as our home. There's always more that we can be doing regarding mold, EMFs and chemicals. But don't let that stop you and don't let that overwhelm you. Keep going. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Continue to educate yourself and keep just doing your best. That's all we can ever do. There's no point looking back and thinking, oh, I should have done that, or I could have done that, or I can't believe I did that. It doesn't matter. Just do your very best in this moment for you, your family, for your health, and for your home. And it will make a difference. It truly will make a difference to your health and to your overall happiness, to your physical health, and to your mental health. So I really hope that you loved this conversation as much as I did. I hope you got so much out of it. And if you did, please subscribe to my show and leave me a review because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. It also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed like magic so that you never have to go searching for a new episode. Now, please come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got out of this conversation. I love connecting with you and I love hearing from you. So please come on over to Insta and connect with me and tell me what you got from this episode. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself 
and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.